The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are taking on basic and not-so-basic genetics. We'll speak with science writer Tina Say and geneticist Julian Knight to use real genetics to tackle an unreal question. How do you get to be a wizard in the wizarding world of Harry Potter? Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. And for the purposes of this podcast, I am also a Gryffindor. I am here today with Dr. Tina Say, a science writer with Science News Magazine. Great to have you, Tina. Hi, it's great to be with you. So this week, we're going to take on something just a little bit different. Over the past few weeks, Tina and I have been talking a bit about basic genetics. Tiny changes in our DNA can control our hair color, our zits, whether we are more susceptible to certain cancers, and even influence whether or not we'll live to see a 100. But genetics can be a little difficult to learn. There are Punnett squares and pea plants in there somewhere. Most people learn that we have two of every gene, except for the sex chromosomes in men, and that dominant genes beat out recessive ones. But what does it mean when a gene makes someone more likely to exhibit a disorder? Why are some diseases such as Huntington's passed down reliably, while others, such as breast cancer, are still worryingly vague? So Tina is here to help us understand basic genetics using something that we or at least the two of us, can get really excited about. The wizarding world of Harry Potter. For those not in the know, Harry Potter is a wildly popular children's series about a magical world hidden from the eyes of non-magical people, or muggles. The author, J.K. Rowling, has stated that wizardry is genetic, that it can be passed down from parent to child. This is obvious in some cases, such as Harry Potter or Draco Malfoy, both of whom have two wizarding parents. But wizards can also crop up in muggle families, such as the character Hermione Granger, whose parents were dentists. There are also rare cases where two magical parents produce a non-magical child, called a squib, as in the case of Argus Filch, who is the caretaker of Hogwarts. So today, we'd like to ask the question, what are the genetics that make a wizard? For some background, J.K. Rowling has estimated the wizarding population of the British Isles at 3,000 people. The population of England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, the Isle of Man, and Jersey were estimated in 2011 to be more than 67 million people. If 3,000 of those people were wizards, that means that wizards make up only 0.004% of the population. That's not very many wizards. But J.K. Rowling has also said that she thinks the wizarding gene is dominant. So... How do you get 3,000 wizards in Britain? Tina, to start us off, what exactly is a gene? Well, a gene is basically a set of instructions that tells a cell how to build a protein. Proteins are the things in cells that, that do most of the work. There, there are a few other things, but proteins are the, are the heavy hitters, the real go-tos. How do genes determine a physical trait such as hair color or eye color? And what are alleles? So I'll start with the second part first. Alleles are different flavors of a gene. And the way that they work to determine a physical trait is through the proteins that they are the instructions for. So a gene 
will uh, make a protein and that protein then will work together with a whole bunch of other proteins to build up a cell and then build the organism and voila, at the end, you come out with a working model human being. So alleles are kind of like ice cream flavors? A little bit like ice cream flavors, um, where you have the, the basic set of instructions. You might have heard uh, DNA referred to as your genetic instruction book. So genes are made up of DNA. These, these little chemicals that are strung together in a very, very long string. Uh, it's, it's meters long, uh, for, for non-metric audiences. That means it is actually, uh, several feet long for each chromosome. And you inherit one copy of each of your chromosomes from your mother and one copy from your father. And along those long strings of those chromosomes are the genes. So you can think of this as like a really super long roll of paper. And for most of the, the paper, it's blank. There's, there's no information. But every now and again, about 1% to 2% of the time, you'll have some very densely worded instructions about how to make protein. And so the cell will, will read off those different instructions and figure out, you know, which tab A goes into which slot B, and they will proceed to to build a person or an animal or what have you um, over the course of development. And then even once you are done cooking, um, the your genes and your proteins are still going to be uh, working hard to help you think, to make you breathe, to digest the food that you eat, to produce the energy that you need, um, to determine when you sleep, all sorts of things like that. And whether or not you're a wizard. And whether or not you're a wizard. <laughs> and how do these genes get combined together when they get passed on from one generation to the next? Well, uh, when you are making uh, the next generation, you do that by producing eggs and sperm. So first of all, you have to, you start with a cell that has uh, 22 sets of regular chromosomes and one set of sex chromosomes. So the, the sex chromosomes are the X and the Y. Women have two X's and men have X and Y. But both sexes have the 22 pairs of the other chromosomes. But an egg and a sperm only has one set of chromosomes. So, so half of, of the total number of chromosomes that would be in a regular cell. So in a regular cell, normally there would be 46 chromosomes. But an egg and a sperm have to get down to 23 chromosomes. And then when they recombine, you go back to 46. When they recombine, you go back to 46. Uh, when, they, when the egg and sperm get together, then you create 
the fertilized egg, which has 46, and then all the rest of your cells will have 46 chromosomes, except for a few cells, like the red blood cells, that just kick all the DNA out. So you're getting, you're getting half of your genes from your dad and half of your genes from your mom. And for each gene, you will get one from your dad and one from your mom. And some of those will be dominant and some of them will be recessive, those genes. Um, many people have heard those terms. What do they mean? So dominant and recessive are referring to sort of the relationship that you would see um, between these, these different alleles, the different flavors that we were talking about of the genes. A dominant allele is one that is going to exert its its will no matter what. It's, it will overwhelm what the other one is doing. A recessive allele, on the other hand, is not going to do that. It will only show its colors when both the copy that you get from your dad and the copy that you get from your mom contain the recessive allele, that recessive flavor. But these are not value judgments, right? These are absolutely not value judgments. Recessive doesn't necessarily mean bad, and dominant doesn't necessarily mean good, and vice versa. Uh, you can have you can have both situations in in both cases. So, what is an example of a dominant mutation that people might have heard of? So, one example of a dominant mutation that is probably the the most commonly heard of dominant is um, Huntington's disease. Now, this is a disease that strikes the brain and causes people to have a lot of movement problems, and um, it's, it's progressive and degenerative, and it usually strikes later in life. So if you get one copy of the disease flavor of that gene, you will develop Huntington's disease. And it doesn't matter whether that came from your mother or your father. You only need one copy to get the disease. So if Huntington's disease is dominant, and if it will always assert itself if you have one copy, why doesn't everyone have Huntington's disease? Because the Huntington's disease allele isn't present in everyone. It is it it isn't even present in most people. It's only found very infrequently. So um, what we have to talk about here, too, is that there can be lots of different flavors of genes and different percentages of people within a population may have each flavor. And very, very few people have the Huntington's alleles. So it's, it's estimated that... Um, that Huntington's disease is only in three to seven people out of every 100,000 of European descent. And that, that number is lower in Africans and the Japanese population. Uh, in the Japanese, I believe it's only maybe one in a million people have a Huntington's disease allele. So it's not going to show up because it's not present very often. And that's a measure of a gene's frequency, is that correct? That's right. That's, that's what we call the allele frequency. And recessive mutations. What's an example of a recessive gene 
that people might be aware of? Well, you probably have heard of redheads and gingers. (laughs) I have heard of redheads, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that's actually a recessive trait. So there is a gene called MC1R, and um, that makes a protein that sits on the surface of cells that, that make pigment. In the, in the allele that the redheads have, that protein is not active. And so the cell only makes red pigment. In, in other people, the protein would be active and it would make black pigments. And with recessive so, mutations, um, yes. recessive mutations are only expressed if one person has both copies of the recessive gene. If exactly. that's the case, how come these mutations don't breed out? How can they persist? Well, because they're not always bad. Take another really uh, famous example of a recessive mutation uh, that you might have heard of, sickle cell anemia. So this is a problem that a lot of people have, um, especially people who are of African descent, where their red blood cells, their red blood cells will form these sickle shapes and they'll get stuck in, in your organs and, and they'll jam up in your blood vessels and it's very, very painful and it causes a lot of damage. It's terrible. Um, and that happens when you get um, two copies of the sickle cell gene. But if you have only one copy, you have a higher chance of not getting malaria. So it can actually protect you against malaria. How does that work? Nobody's really sure exactly why having the sickle cell gene protects you from malaria, but it does. It's a very well-known protective event. And another really um, famous example of a recessive disease is cystic fibrosis. This is a disease that happens when you have a mutation that stops uh, a protein that, that moves salt in and out of your cells when that stops working. Um, but also, when you have only one copy of that, you are resistant to things like tuberculosis and cholera. So, you know, in that case, it can be really good, but you don't want to have cystic fibrosis. That can be really bad. You get a lot of buildup of mucus in your lungs and your and your um, digestive enzymes don't work correctly, and people die at, at very young ages. So... You know, it's it's both good and bad, and that those hidden advantages are the reasons why a lot of these recessive alleles just haven't gone away. But also, there's the element of chance, um, and that's that's really important when we're talking about genetics and and evolution. That um, sometimes things just stick around because they've hitched a ride with something that is good or something that's neutral. And sometimes it's a function of time. You know, it, it isn't bad enough that natural selection has weeded it out yet. And then there's also the possibility that you can get a recessive allele by having a new mutation. So every time 
you replicate your DNA. So every time you make a new copy of your instruction book, you can make a mistake. And sometimes that mistake will, will hit a really important gene and you can then develop a disease as a result. I would also like to state for the record that redheads, though a recessive mutation, are not a disease. Redheads are absolutely not a disease. Totally value neutral. They are, uh, I would say, often very, very lovely variants. (laughs) So we just talked about frequency, and you mentioned that Huntington's disease is a dominant mutation, but it's at very low frequency in the population. But there's also a concept in genetics called penetrance. What is penetrance? So penetrance is the chance that the disease will actually develop in somebody who has a disease gene. Um, We don't really know why, but a lot of times people can have a disease gene, but not get the disease. Take, for instance, breast cancer. There's a couple of mutations in two genes that are known as BRCA1 and BRCA2, or BRCA1 and 2. People, women who have uh, mutations in those genes have a really high chance of developing breast and ovarian cancer. It's, it's up to, you know, 70 to 80% by the time they're in their 70s. But not everybody who has the exact same mutation as somebody who got breast cancer, not everybody's going to get it. And we don't really know why that is. Some of that may be because you have other things that are protecting you from it, other genes that are protecting you from it. It may be that you have a very healthy lifestyle. It may be other environmental things that we just don't understand at this point. You're listening to Science for the People. We'll be back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm here with science writer Tina Say. This week, we're speculating about what genetics might be needed to make Harry Potter a real deal. Tina, we just talked about dominant and recessive genes, and we also talked a little bit about frequency and penetrance. But these are just basic genes. There are also modifiers and promoters. What are these? So a promoter is something that it's like the control station for a gene. It determines when that gene is going to turn on and when it's going to be turned off. And that's important. You have to have the right timing when it comes to genetics. You don't want some genes turning on at the wrong time, and you don't want them turning off at the wrong time, too. Modifiers can be lots of different things. In this case, we're probably going to be talking about other genes that determine how much 
of a particular protein is being made from the gene that we're interested in, for instance, um, because how much of a protein is can determine how big of a job that protein can take on. Or um, you can have modifiers that, that cause a protein to do a slightly different job. Because the one of the dirty little secrets in genetics is that, at least in humans, for genes, one gene can make lots of different proteins. Um, in bacteria and viruses and simple organisms like that, it's usually one gene makes one protein. But in us, a, a, a single gene can make many different varieties of proteins, and each of those proteins can have a slightly different job. So it's, it's important to have the, the right protein for the job. And modifiers can shift which thing, which job your protein and your gene is going to be doing. And when we were talking about uh, promoters, there's actually, it's not in wizardry, but there is another fantasy, uh, fantasy world that actually has a promoter gene implicated in its expression. Which one is that one? Well, I think that the X gene that makes X-Men is possibly a promoter mutation. So you could be having different levels of the X gene pr produced, and that could give you different powers. And of course, all of this gene expression and modification and promotion, this is all dependent on whether or not the gene will get made into a protein, whether that protein is magical or otherwise. How can that get started or stopped? There's lots of ways. So I told you that a gene gets made into a protein, but there's a middleman there, and that's RNA. The instructions in the DNA get copied into RNA, and then the RNA goes to protein-building machines, and then your protein gets made. So at pretty much any point along the way, you could have a problem with copying your DNA into the RNA. You could have a you could have a problem with getting your RNA to the protein building machines. You could have a problem with um, actually then making the protein, or you could have all those things go smoothly, but then the protein doesn't fold up right, or it just doesn't work right for some reason, or, or maybe it's not long enough or something. So there's just many, many steps along the way that could go wrong. <laughs> this feels kind of hopeless, but now that we know all the things that can go wrong, Tina, are you ready to make a wizard? I am ready. <laughs> J.K. Rowling estimates there are 3,000 wizards in the British Isles. So let's start by assuming that wizarding is a dominant gene. If that dominant gene had a high frequency, if it were present in the entire population, if that was the case, what proportion of the population would be wizards? About 75%. Well, if everybody had, <laughs> then you would have 100% wizards. Everybody in Britain would be a wizard. But let's just say, let's take the um, common case where you would have wizarding be dominant and not wizarding be the recessive. And 
So you would have a chance if it, if it follows the regular rules of genetics, which we can lay out in Punnett squares, 25% would have two copies of the dominant wizarding gene. So they would definitely be wizards. And 50% would have one copy of the wizarding gene and one copy of the non-wizarding gene, and they would be wizards. So that's 75%. And then the other 25% would inherit two copies of the non-wizarding gene. And since there are, assuming there are only 3,000 wizards in Britain, that is way too many wizards. <laughs> that is way too many wizards. Although, you know, British people do have those magical accents. Very true. Well, what if the gene were the recessive version? What if you had a gene that was dominant and that was the muggle gene, and then you had a recessive wizard gene? What happens then? Well, again, say if you had just those two versions and that was it, and it was, you know, kind of at the, at a, at a similar frequency, then 25% of your population in Britain would be wizards because you, it would take both copies to make a wizard. But again, still too many wizards. Still too many wizards. So a single dominant or recessive gene is not going to cut it here. Have you thought of some options that could generate a wizard? Well, we could still have a single dominant or recessive gene, but at very, very low frequency. So, you know, if, if wizarding is recessive, especially if you look at the frequency of a lot of rare genetic diseases that are recessive, you're talking about, you know, um, one in a million or one in 200,000 or one in several thousand people. So, you know, that's something that could happen. It's just that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a very common, uh, variety. And if that were the case, if you had something with that was dominant but had very low frequency, like Huntington's, except instead of Huntington's, it was wizards. Um, if that were the case, how would you get a muggle-born witch like Hermione Granger? So um, Hermione could arise by that process that I was talking about earlier, where you have a spontaneous new mutation. So she could just be one of those lucky few people that when they make a mistake in copying all their genes, the mistake that they made confers magical powers in the form of this dominant mutation. And how would you get a squib, someone with no magic that's born with magical parents? So someone like that would have to have lost that dominant allele. So they may have gotten, um, you could also have the, the parents being each of them have the dominant allele and the, the muggle allele, the wizarding allele and the muggle allele, but they have passed on only the muggle alleles to the squib. This would make squibs relatively common though, even in something that was dominant, but with low frequency, this would actually make the proportion of squibs much more common than it seems to be in the books. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's probably true. I mean, we know of one squib for sure. Oh, Hagrid's not exactly 
a squid because he's not from a, a pure magic family. Um, well, and he was admitted to Hogwarts and actually got all the way through his second year before he was kicked out uh, during the first opening of the Chamber of Secrets. Well, that's true. That's true. So, Nerd moment. <laughs> so Hagrid doesn't really count as a squib. It's, it's Filch that we know is the squib, the caretaker. And he does seem to be a rarity. So in that case, you would have a you would have the reverse situation perhaps where the wizarding allele, you know, as Hermione got lucky and got a wizarding allele, poor Filch, his wizarding allele may have gotten damaged and prevents him now from doing magic. We were talking about a gene that has high, um, high dominance, but very low frequency what kind of a ratio in the population would this genetic change have to have to give you only 3,000 wizards in Britain? Well, this would, this would be, have to be something that um, was present in less than 1% of Britons to, to give you that, that low of a frequency. Um, that would be a very rare mutation indeed. And... There's also an, el- an element here of a sort of mating, because with only 3,000 people in the wizarding population, pureblood wizards are, well, they're, they're marrying their cousins. Uh, the book even mentions the uh, Black family marrying a lot of their cousins. Is that okay? Actually, marrying your cousin isn't as bad as we used to think it might be for genetics and, and being inbred. Obviously, there have been a lot of, um, a lot of cases where marrying your cousin, uh, such as the royal families of Europe, intermarrying, produce people who had some problems, like, for instance, hemophilia, the disease where you get cut, you can bleed to death. Um, but uh, for people who don't, do it generation after generation after generation, um, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It's, it's not appreciably worse. So as far as they can tell, than marrying someone else who is maybe not your cousin, but you know, also not your complete opposite. This is Science for the People, and we're talking about fantasy genetics with Tina Say, a science writer at Science News. But now we're going to take a quick left turn back into reality and go from fantasy wizards to the possibility of real-life superheroes. Tina, you recently wrote a story about a new paper that posited the existence of genetic escape artists, people who have genes that should cause them to have symptoms of a disorder, but appear to be perfectly fine. Who are these people and why were scientists looking for them? So these people are 13 people out of almost 600,000 people that scientists were looking at. Who They were people who had donated their DNA for genetic research. Um, about 400,000 of them are customers of 23andMe. Um, a company that does genetic testing. Um, and the others came from various places in China and Europe and the United States. Um, and scientists were looking for them because 
although we've identified disease genes, so genes that when you have a mutation in them can cause a, a genetic disease, um, knowing what those genes are hasn't necessarily always allowed us to do anything about the disease. And so Stephen Friend and his colleagues, they started thinking about, well, you know, how can we find solutions to the problems of these diseases? And they hit on the idea that if you had somebody who had these recessive these recessive alleles, but didn't have the disease, those people have already naturally solved the problem. So we can just look at what their bodies naturally did to help them avoid getting a disease. But the first thing they had to do was go out and see if they could even find these people. And how do you analyze the data of more than half a million people to look for people who just don't have a disease. What were they looking for? So they specifically went out and looked for diseases that are caused by recessive mutations and that appear in childhood. But the people that they were looking at were healthy adults. So they reasoned that if they had two recessive mutations in one of uh, more than a hundred different disease genes, then those people should have gotten sick already. They should have had the disease. So if they made it to adulthood and were healthy, then those would be the people they were looking for. And what did they find? They found 13 what? They found 13 people who had or who should have had one of eight different diseases. Um, and there were some, some of the people, for some of the diseases, there was only one person who had managed to escape it. For some of them, there were multiple people who had managed to escape it. For instance, there were three people who it looks like they should have had cystic fibrosis, but they don't. And these are 13 people among half a million, more than half a million, who might be real-life superheroes, in a way. Can we ever know who these people are? We can't know who these people are. These people don't even know who they are. And that's because when the people agreed to donate their DNA and allow it to be used for research, there was no clause that would allow the researchers to come back and tell them what ever results they had of a, had obtained by looking at these people's DNA. So these people are mysteries unto themselves. And the researchers can go back and find out who they are either. Uh, you know, the idea behind that was to help protect people's identities and their privacy. But in this case, you know, maybe they would really want to know that they have this incredible superpower and maybe they would agree to be studied further but the researchers can't do it so they have to go out and look for more of these people part of me is really sad about that and part of me kind of thrills to the possibility you know if you gave your data to 23andme it could be you 
You it never could know. be. It could be. <laughs> so how likely is this finding? This this is 13 people out of more than half a million people. Is it possible that these people are a statistical fluke? Or is it possible that they didn't actually avoid the disease and, and maybe they just didn't report their symptoms or something? Yeah, unfortunately, because the researchers can't go back and contact these people again and retest them to make sure that they really do have these mutations and take a close look at their medical history, they can't determine whether or not maybe they just have some really mild symptoms that just didn't show up and people didn't recognize this as this disease before. Um, so it's still possible that some of these people may not be really superheroes after all. Um, but for at least five of them, they have verified that those people do in fact have two copies of a recessive allele. So there's probably at least five genetic superheroes out there. There's still a chance. <laughs> and there's only 13 people at most. That's not a lot. It's and not a lot. And the researchers each... were looking for protective genes that might be protecting these people with a sample size of only 13. Can you even identify those genes? Uh, it would be incredibly difficult. You couldn't do it with 13 people. And remember, they don't have 13 people for each of those diseases. They've only got three people with cystic who have escaped cystic fibrosis and one person who's escaped this horrible skin disorder and two people who have, who have managed to skate by without getting some other disease. So studying two or three or one person is not going to tell you how they managed to do it. You need huge numbers of people. Huge, huge, because you have so many genes. You have 22,000 genes. And, you know, we know that there's a problem in, in one of them that should be giving you a disease. But then you have, you know, uh, the other 21,999. <laughs> exactly. That could be the thing that's preventing you from getting it. So you need hundreds of thousands of people or millions and millions of people to be able to, to do that kind of research to, to first of all, go find these really rare people and then to do the type of statistical analysis that you would need to hopefully identify the protective alleles. Is that what the researchers are going to do? Just go out and try and find a lot more people? They are. They are. They really hope to be able to recruit a lot more people. Um, but they, um, they are, they're having to change the way they do the research right up front, um, where they would need to get permission to contact these people again if they do find out that, you know, for whatever reason that they are they are superheroes, or maybe, you know, to tell them that they're not. Tina, thank you so much for doing this with me. It has been fabulous fun to geek out with you. It's been fun for me too. And I have to say, go Hufflepuff. I think we're going to have a good chance in the next Quidditch tournament. <laughs> Thanks. 
We've linked to Tina's science writing at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you go to that address, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can download past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. When we get back, we'll be joined by Julian Knight, a geneticist who decided to go the extra mile with human genetics and Harry Potter. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Science for the People. I'm here with Dr. Julian Knight, a professor of genomic medicine at the Wellcome Trust Center for Human Genetics at the University of Oxford. He studies how different genes in people might contribute to the way their immune systems behave. But back in 2007, he took on a genetic study that was a bit more, shall we say, magical. Great to have you with us, Julian. No, it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that. So first of all, I want to ask, have you been sorted? Into Hogwarts? Well, um, I come from a, a family of pretty hardcore fans, and it's something that I hadn't gotten around to, but um, I have to say that I have now, thanks to some help from my daughter, been on the Pottermore site, and I was sorted, and I was pretty excited to end up in Gryffindor. Oh, I'm a Gryffindor too! <laughs> <laughs> House pride. Okay. To get started... There have actually been a couple of commentaries and short pieces in mm. scientific journals by scientists about the genetics of Harry Potter. And a comment in Nature in September of 2005 stated that while some people wanted to use wizardry and Harry Potter to teach genetics, they didn't think there was enough evidence to suggest that wizardry was genetic at all. But J.K. Rowling has stated that wizardry is genetic. What do you think? Well, I, th I'm, I think that this is indeed a, a controversial subject, but um, I think there is definitely a heritable component to magic. Uh, the, the complexity of it is understanding how that fits with what we know about genetics. Um, and I think that it's a field that, that's moving so fast that we now understand it's a lot more complex than perhaps people had originally appreciated. Um, so whilst you know, it might be that magic doesn't fit with simple genetic models. I think there are um, ways of, of thinking about genetics uh, whereby we can come up with some hypotheses of, of how genetics could be inherited and some of the ways that it could be um, operating. And in 2007, you actually did that. You published a review on the genetics behind Harry Potter. Why did you do this? Well, it's a good question. Um, so we were trying to use that article to introduce people genet to genetics in an interesting and a fun way um, and to try and highlight some current ideas and challenges in the field. And I think it's important to realize that this paper was published in the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal. And that's the one week in the year when the journal publishes lighthearted articles that are designed to entertain as well as inform. So although at the time some people questioned why serious scientists should be spending time on this, I think that maybe misses the point in that what we were really thinking about was public engagement with science, which is so hugely important for lots of reasons. 
not least inspiring the next generation of future scientists and helping everyone to understand a bit more about genetics. Okay, so these multiple genes, if there are multiple genes responsible, they would be in multiple loci. Is that correct? What does that mean? In classical um, genetic, rare genetic diseases, um, there's the idea that um, inheriting a single gene with a dominant effect could give rise to the characteristic that's being considered, in this case, magic. Um, and what we were thinking about was whether actually a number of different genes could be involved and genetic variation in those that might be accounting for um, the patterns of inheritance that we saw in the various characters in the Harry Potter books. Because we were certainly convinced that there was strong evidence um, for a genetic effect um, based, for example, on the large family lineages, such as you see with the black family, or indeed um, the evidence from the twins that are described in the Harry Potter books, um, which would strongly support um, a, a genetic effect. And indeed, what we see with Harry himself, where he's raised with muggles after the death of his very magical parents, um, which helps to distinguish between genetic and environmental um, effects. So given that um, we have squibs in the books and we have um, people with magical ability arising um, from two parents who are muggles, um, we felt that this didn't fit with a um, single gene um, having a dominant effect. So we considered the possibility of multiple genes being involved um, and having modifier effects. So what I mean by that is that you could come up with a hypothesis that could, there could indeed be a dominant mutation in a gene that's involved in a very general way with how um, other genes are regulated. And this is uh, taking us into a field called epigenetics. And um, there are genes which encode proteins called histones, and they're involved in packaging up all of our DNA um, to make it work. So you can think about DNA as a blueprint of instructions for life, and we need to know how to switch on particular bits of those instructions at the right time to make proteins. And it turns out that our DNA um, is packaged up in all our cell nuclei in, into um, chromatin, and this is very tightly controlled, as you can imagine, and that's a very important process. So if something happened with a mutation um, that affected one of these histone genes, that could change the whole packaging of our DNA within the cell nuclei and the way that genes were switched and off, such that you would see a magical type expression of genes. Um, and we know that there are lots of different types of regulatory um, sites across the genome that control the way genes are switched on and off. Um, so our magical enhancers, if you like, would join that list of regulatory elements. And what's potentially attractive about this hypothesis is that such a mutation in a histone gene could have arisen in our perhaps very distant ancestors and could account for non-human magical creatures having some magical abilities, such as house elves, goblins, or centaurs. Um, and perhaps in squibs, um, for those individuals, there could be some further um, compensatory epigenetic event, which returns the chromatin to its 
normal, non-magical or muggle state. So that was the way we were thinking. Um, and obviously, this is a thought experiment, um, as as we, we you know we don't have the experimental evidence to to back up um, these ideas. Okay, so you were talking about um, enhancer elements that affect the kind of wrapping of DNA around yeah. a histone. Um, how do those enhancer elements themselves get modified? So um, the, these histone proteins, which form nucleosomes, which is what uh, the DNA is wrapped around, um, they, they, they have um, protein tails to them, and there are particular covalent modifications that happen on those histone tails. And people actually talk about something called the histone um, code, um, which is a very precise set of instructions that help um, in this whole regulatory process. If you think it a bit, a bit like either an on-off switch for a gene or a thermostat, um, these regulators help us very precisely um, do the, the tuning of um, levels of expression that we might need of particular genes at particular times. So, you know, if, if um, cells are exposed to a particular stimulus in the environment and um, need to need to respond then particular genes might be switched on or indeed during our development in the womb uh, there might be particular sets of genes that we need to be expressed to get um, um, you know the the correct patterning of our organs and development so you just mentioned that there might be an environmental trigger or something in mm. the womb um, yeah is there an do you posit an environmental trigger for magic um, well, at the, at the moment, I would say no. Um, but the other important thing to bear in mind in terms of magical ability is that it's, it, it, it's, it's variable. So you can compare the, you know, extraordinary skills of Albus Dumbledore, um, headmaster at Hogwarts with the relative, um, ineptitude of Crabbe and Goyle, who, as I'm sure you remember, are the sidekicks of, of Draco Malfoy. So there's this range of magical ability, which means that we probably need to think about it as what you might describe as a quantitative trait. And definitely when you're thinking about quantitative traits, that tends to involve the contributions of multiple genes um, rather than single gene effects. Okay, and you talked about multiple genes. How do these multiple genes get passed down all together? when um wizards for example marry other wizards yeah so that that's interesting isn't it because it might be that um you know this mutation that could well be dominant um, within the histone gene you can imagine that being passed down um, and then being modified but it may be that some wizards only inher inherit certain of these other modified genes and this might then help explain why you know, there are some very specific magical traits in the books um, that are only possessed by very few wizards. Um, and that might include things like um, parcel tongue or particular skills that witches or wizards might have. And how does this model of multiple genes um, with an epigenetic effect account for muggle-born witches and wizards such as Hermione Granger? Well, that's where we, we, we still 
struggle a bit. Um, now, there's the possibility that a mutation can occur again um, by chance, and that's it's a pretty small chance of a mutation um, occurring in a particular gene to affect its function in a particular way that would give rise to magic. But we do know that there are some rare inherited diseases where if you look around the world, um, there's strong evidence to show that the same mutation has arisen more than once um, and led to that particular disease phenotype. So it is possible that something like that has happened um, within um, the setting of magic or the possibility that in some way, um, if you if you went back in Hermione's family, perhaps there were squibs there or there was some evidence um, to suggest that there, there could have been some magical abilities. But maybe Hermione is not a great example because it does seem from the books that, you know, she's the daughter of two muggle dentists um, in a pretty resolutely muggle way with no family history of magical abilities. So we, as always, as scientists and geneticists in particular, we like more data. Um, and it's just a shame that, you know, we're, we're not going to get any, any more of the, of the Harry Potter books, as, at least as far as we know. So we need more wizards. That's the issue. We need, that, I think that's the fundamental issue. We need to identify more witches and wizards. And we need to understand exactly what their skills are. And we need to understand their family histories. And in, in fact, you know, when I'm in the hospital, that's um, we're talking with the junior doctors. That's always something that comes up. You know, you need to take a family history from patients when they come into hospital because uh, it can teach you so much. Um, and I think that it was great that um, J.K. Rowling was able to give us such lovely family lineages. Uh, we could just do with a few more. Okay. And you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you got help from some underage wizards in the writing of this manuscript. Um, how mm. did you do that without breaking the statute of secrecy? Well, you know, it was it was difficult, but um, I have to say that a, a lot of the um, the detailed research that went into this um, involved long car journeys, and it was just fortunate that the three under underage um, witches happened happened to be in the car at the time. Um, but everyone in the team contributed, uh, so we definitely had different members of the team carrying out repeated readings of the books. Um, so you can be rest assured that we, we try to do our research as thoroughly as possible. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> um, so you published a review about the genetic changes involved in a magical world that no matter how much we love it, and we do love it, doesn't exist. What impact do you hope this kind of a paper might have? Well, I, as as, I, as we, we talked about at the beginning, I think it's really, um, if people talk about it, that's great. Um, and if people who maybe have never thought about genetics um, do so, and um, if, if we can encourage a greater debate about how we want to use genetic information um, as a society, then I think that would be wonderful because the whole field is moving so fast and we've got such uh, great technologies now that allow us to look rather than one gene at a time, we can look at all genes and we can look at huge amounts of genetic variation and we can sequence people's entire genomes 
relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. Um, what we don't know is how we should be using that information for the benefit of the individual and for the benefit of society, because there's no doubt that this is going to help us in terms of making diagnoses for particular uh, genetic conditions. It's going to help us in terms of understanding um, how particular diseases which may have only a modest genetic contribution arise. Um, so in terms of understanding pathogenesis and also understanding what new targets there might be for new therapies for disease. Um, but that comes at potentially a cost because uh, genetic information is potentially sensitive um, and the idea of having genetic testing uh, could have implications um, and we need to make sure that that information is properly protected and is used wisely um, because if we do that, then I think that the stage is really set for huge uh, medical advances over the next um, five or ten years. But given the implications for privacy, it's easy to tell why wizards might not necessarily be so hot on having their genes sequenced. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I did I, I mention, as I say, that we were going to be having this, this conversation to one of my daughters yesterday. Um, and she came up with a point which maybe I hadn't thought about uh, deeply enough, which is that witches and wizards just like to marry each other. That was her explanation of keeping it in the family, if you like, um, and how we might get these, these long, uh, long family lineages. Well, Julian, thank you so much. It has been delightful to have you on, and I'm so happy that you published this paper. <laughs> well, it's great that um, you know we were able to talk about it, because it is a little while ago now, but um, as, as, as I've said before, you know, whenever I bring this up in a, as a kind of teaching example uh, to students, it always provokes a lively debate. Um, and the models that people come up with in terms of how magic's inherited uh, never seem to be the same um, year on year. Um, so there's, there's definitely not a, a single answer to this. Um, and, but it's definitely also fun to, to try and work out how it might work. We've linked to Dr. Knight's work and webpage at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you go to that address, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can download past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. And if you want to drop us a few dollars on Patreon to help fund our wonderful work, we would love it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. 
The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. 